the Bible. A collection of 66 individual books that tell one common story. A story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. A book that has shaped civilizations and guided movements of God for millennia. a book of ancient stories, archaic customs, and cryptic language maintain its relevance to each of us in a world that seems to have moved on. It's time to get a new perspective on the Bible, to see how it integrates into the complexities of our world and the simplicities of everyday life, to experience its power to transform lives and redefine realities. This is a view of the Bible from 30,000 feet. All right, come on in, grab a seat. Grateful to have you with us this morning. Good morning to everybody. Happy New Year. Uh, if you weren't with us last Sunday for our, our New Year kickoff, it is great to be with you today uh, in 2023. We're excited for all that God has got planned for us. Uh, a few things were mentioned there in the video. Great start to our classes this morning. Nick just killed it uh, with his Trinity class, so we're excited to continue that next week. Join us at 9.30 for that. And then uh, next month, February, we'll have several different class options available to you during that Bible class hour in between our two services. Uh, one other thing to make mention of, uh, just give us a little bit more time and we'll get all of our numbers kind of summarized for 22. We would love to present those to you, kind of how we ended up as a church with our budget in terms of some of our vision and goals. Uh, so we'll try to, try to have a, a meeting maybe in February or March to let you know how things wrapped up in 22 and where we're headed in 23. You all were so faithful, so generous, so kind to us, so supportive. Uh, we are grateful for that and excited to see what God has in store for us this year. Uh, I'm excited this morning to, uh, as she said on the screen, to kick off, not going to go as high as she did, uh, kick off a new series. Uh, so let me pray for us real fast, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into what this Simply 7 is all about. Father, we thank you for a new day today. And the promise in your scripture that your mercies are new today. That no matter what happened yesterday, no matter how many times we maybe messed up or, or, or fell short, God, that we didn't exasperate you to the point where you gave up on us. No, instead this morning we started brand new. We're a new creation this morning and you're doing new things in us this morning. We have new opportunities today and so we're just grateful for that. Uh, we would pray that you would speak to our hearts now, God. Speak to our minds, our spirits as we open up your word. We want to be people of the book. We want to know what the Bible says, what the scripture says, and we want to live that out. And so would you help us to do that now? We, we love your word, and we ask that it will do what only it can do this morning. Come alive and change us, Father. Make it so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, how many of you uh, really love confusing or overly complicated things? Anybody? Uh, maybe outside of some of the crazy engineer types that we have in here. I know that we do have some of you, right? You love those things that are super complicated. But most of us, right, for the most part, we don't gravitate towards really difficult things. We prefer for them to be easy, relatively straightforward. Uh, that's why a series of books came out in the early 90s called For Dummies. Anybody remember these black and yellow books? All right, it was there for the rest of us. It was there to help make things simple, to break it down to kind of a, a layman's understanding of things. It started in November of 91. The first book was DOS for Dummies, if you can believe that. They became really popular, though, when Andy Rathbone wrote Windows for Dummies. Here's a copy of that book right there. 
This is the best-selling computer book of all time. 15 million copies of Windows for Dummies has been sold over the years. So I don't know if that means Windows was made by dummies, uh, is for dummies, or makes you a dummy. I'm not sure, but either how you, you know, no matter how you cut it, folks thought that that computer program early on was very complicated, and they wanted it to be made a little bit easier to understand. And that happens outside of computer programs, right? We like for things to be as simple as possible. If they get really complicated, then we feel overwhelmed by them. If they're over our heads, then we just kind of are over it and we walk away from it. I'll give you a couple of examples in real life. How about buying toothpaste? Does anybody else feel slightly overwhelmed walking through a toothpaste aisle nowadays? I mean, how many dentist-approved fluoride, tartar control, plaque-fighting, blue and pink or green boxes do you need? All right, it's overwhelming. I just want these teeth right here to stay in there as long as possible. Is that possible? Is that possible? Anybody? Anybody? All right, how about uh, finances or investments? When Becca and I were first married, I had a friend getting into that industry, and so he sat me down with some classes and kind of introduced me to this world, and I thought the man was speaking a foreign language the entire time I was sitting in the room. CDs, money markets, mutual funds, stock options, commodities, bonds, private equities, cash value, life insurance options that are tax-deferred. What? I just want this little bit of money that I have right now to be a lot of bit of money later in my life. Is that possible? Anybody? Can you help me with that? And then there is health care. A few years ago, I was shopping for health insurance for the church that I was pastoring, and, and I thought I needed a Ph.D. in three-letter acronyms to make sense of all of this. ACA, FSO, EPO, PPO, HMO, HSAOMG. It was complicated. There are so many things in life that just gravitate to becoming more and more complicated over time. And what happens with toothpaste or investment options or even your health care plan, it can happen with your faith. It can happen in Christianity. See, it's one thing to be overwhelmed by toothpaste. It's another to be baffled by the Bible. This book is meant to be read and understood by anyone, by everyone. But what happens is that the church or Christians can make it overly complicated. It can become rather confusing at times. And we insert, you know, personal political views or what your philosophy professor said back in college or your view on evolution or the end times. And suddenly what's meant to be easy and straightforward is anything but. It can be overly complicated. And that's exactly what happened back in the first century, before Jesus even showed up on the scene. Back in the first century, there were two groups of religious experts, if you will, the paid professionals. They were known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they loved debating things. They loved arguing over what God said in the Old Testament, all the laws and the rules and the commands. So they would stand out on the street corner, literally out in the public marketplaces, and they would just debate what did God mean and what did he say and, and what was intended by this particular command. But they made things super complicated. Let me tell you how they did that. They took the Ten Commandments and they expanded them, get this, to 613. Anybody have trouble with the ten? Like, I don't need any extra, right? Those ten by themselves are tough enough. 613 commands? Are you kidding me? They ended up adding so many more rules, so many more regulations that scholars believe they could have filled 400 sets 
of Encyclopedia Britannica's with extra stuff. For the youth, an Encyclopedia Britannica is this series of books. It's kind of like Google's great, great, great grandpa in paper form. Any, is that a good definition, right? But I remember when my parents bought that first set, right? The door-to-door salesman comes around, Encyclopedia Britannica, anything you could ever want to know right here. I mean, it took up like most of our living room shelf. Can you imagine 400 sets of those? All of that was extra, and all of that made the faith and knowing God super complicated. From 10 commands to 613. From one book to hundreds of thousands of books. From simple and straightforward to super complicated and convoluted. And that's why Jesus had such harsh words for the religious leaders of his day. Because they took something that was supposed to be so simple, so life-giving, and they made it so complicated. That's one of the reasons I think Jesus, his ministry was so important, why his message was so life-giving. Nearly every time he spoke, Jesus just kept things so simple. It's called the simplicity of the Savior. And it's one of the reasons why so many people gravitated towards him. Do you want to go look through the 400 sets of Encyclopedia Britannica, or would you rather just talk to Jesus? Because he liked to keep things so simple. The kingdom of heaven, it's like a little mustard seed. It starts off kind of small, looks insignificant, but when it grows, it becomes this huge life-giving bush. The nature of God, the heart of the Father is like a shepherd. He's got a hundred sheep and one of them walks off and he, he's so in love with that sheep, so, so passionate about it that he leaves and he sacrifices the other for the sake of the one. All of the laws and all of the prophets, they can be summarized in this one command, Jesus said, love God and love other people. It's simple. Keep it simple. So how about you? Where, is, where, where are you? Where is your understanding maybe on this continuum? Do you err on the side of keeping it simple and straightforward? Is, is your faith and your understanding of the biblical narrative, is it simple and life-giving? Or have you kind of fallen into this trap of those religious leaders where it's complicated now? You don't even know what's most important. 613, 400 extra books. Where are you with this? Because uh, truth be told, over the years I have heard well-meaning Christians just butcher butcher the explanation of this book. Well, you know, it all started with Adam and Eve who, who sinned back in the garden, whose kids turned out to be a real handful. And then a guy named Noah built a boat even though he didn't know what a boat was and he saved humanity along with the entire animal kingdom during a, a worldwide flood, although some people think it was kind of a localized flood. And after God's people who were called the Israelites because a guy named Jacob, whose dad was Isaac, whose grandpa was Abraham, formerly known as Abram, changed his, changed his name to Israel. He had 12 children, the 12 tribes of Israel. They all ended up as slaves in Egypt because the new Pharaoh forgot about the agreement had with Moses, the Hebrew orphan who became the prince of Egypt. Great movie, by the way. Oh, I forgot to tell you about the, the Tower of Babel, where humanity thought they were more powerful than God, so God spread them out all over the earth. That's how we have different languages, different cultures. Well, back to our story. you got to hear about this King David. Oh, King David was a giant slaying shepherd king, loved the Lord, but also loved the ladies, if you know what I'm talking about. Huh? I got no clue what you're talking about. What is most important there? You just messed up a great story. You just made something super complicated that's not designed to be complicated. Nobody knows what you're talking about. It's like we sound like the religious leaders of old. You've taken God's word and you've made it super complicated. Albert Einstein said it best, did he not? If you can't explain it to a six-year-old, then you don't understand it yourself. But it's not just about understanding. It's about living it. 
That's the goal of the biblical narrative. It's not just to be able to explain it to a six-year-old. It's to be able to live it so that a six-year-old wants to follow in your footsteps and live it too. That's the point of the biblical narrative. How many of you have ever heard the phrase biblical worldview? Probably not a phrase that all of us are familiar with, but maybe a few. So a worldview is, is just that. It's a way to view the world. It's a way to understand why things are the way they are. It helps you to answer questions like, why is there a world versus there not being a world? Why is the world the way that it is? Why am I in the world versus not being in the world? What's up with all the problems in the world? What's the solution to the problems in the world? And where in the world is this world headed? And a worldview helps you answer all of those questions. Others might call that a, a meta-narrative, a large story, an overarching story that helps you to make sense of everything else. It's the lens by which you view the world. And everybody has one. Some understand their worldview, their meta-narrative better than others, but everybody has one. It could be the Big Bang Theory. It could be the Big Kahuna. It could be the Buddhist sevenfold path. It could be reincarnated 7,000 times. Everybody has a worldview, a story. It helps you answer everything, every question that we ask. And a biblical worldview is simply a view of the world that is shaped by and defined by the Bible, the Scripture. This is the lens through which we see and understand everything else. This story, this meta-narrative, helps us to make sense of everything else, from our passions to our political beliefs, from how we see ourselves to how we treat the outsider. All of it is informed, driven by a biblical worldview. Let me explain kind of how this works a little bit. By definition, your worldview should drive what you do, what you think, how you act. So if your worldview is survival of the fittest, even if you don't know it, but if that's the worldview that's driving you, then this is going to be true of your life. You are going to accumulate as much as you can. You're going to be a workaholic. You're trying to have as much money and toys and guns as possible because it's survival of the fittest, and I want to be the fittest. So my view of the world drives how I interact with the world. Does that make sense? If your worldview is do whatever feels good, then you're going to consume porn or alcohol or weed, anything else that gives you a temporary high because it's all driven about how you feel. Your feelings are the master. They're the lens through which you see the world. And here's something that kind of caught me off guard recently. A recent study by Barna showed that Christians, only 37% of them have a biblical worldview. That seems kind of odd, doesn't it? To call yourself a Christian, but to not actually have a worldview of the Bible that is in line with the teachings of Christ. How is that possible? Well, here's, here's how I assume this goes. We take the parts of the Bible that we like, that we enjoy, that we maybe heard before, and that's part of our worldview, but it's not the entirety of it. And then we add to what Jesus said or what God said to what Oprah said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Bible plus Oprah plus what Trump said. Well, that's a good combo. No, no, no. It's Bible plus Oprah plus Trump plus the guy that everybody listens to constantly now. I'm kind of sick of this guy's name, Rogan. Is it Joe Rogan? He's like the new Jesus. He does have some cool stuff. I, I can't dog him that bad. But you see what happens there? It's like, okay, I kind of believe these parts of the world and these parts of the Bible, and I just stir them up all together, and bam, there's my worldview. It's a hybrid worldview. The problem is it's not a complete worldview. It, does, it doesn't work that well. 
And I would argue that as this has happened, that 63% of Christians don't have a true biblical worldview because we as the church have made it overly complicated. We have taken it, it's supposed to be simple and straightforward, and we've made it anything but. Years ago, I was given a book entitled The 98 Essential Christian Doctrines. 98 essential. Well, which one is essential, right? The definition of essential means it's core of the core of the core. You add 98, that's not a far cry from 613. But we like to say, this is most important, and this is most important, and this is what God said, and this is what God said. And so we add, and we add, and we add, and we add. And people are like, you know what? I just want some plain toothpaste. Like, my life just isn't very happy right now. I don't know what to do about my, my finances. I don't know what to do in my marriage, my kids. I'm afraid to die. I have regrets. Can you keep it simple? What does Jesus say? Simply. And so our hope for the next few weeks is to teach you how Christianity and a biblical worldview can truly be summarized in seven words. We're going to keep it simple. Simply seven. I believe that the relevancy and the power of the Bible can actually be encapsulated in seven words. Now I know that seven words doesn't sound like much. But just stop and think for a second about what you can say in seven words. I want you to be my wife. Oh, that's pretty big. Your cancer is stage four and terminal. That's pretty big. I would like another piece of cheesecake. Oh, that's good. See, there's a lot of power in seven words. You can say a lot without having to say a whole lot. And so we're going to use the number seven, which was used in Hebrew culture to communicate completion and wholeness. And we're going to show you how everything you need to say about life and love, heaven and hell, good and evil, pain and suffering and problems and people and everything in between, you can say it in seven words. It's going to be so simple you can explain it to a six-year-old. But more than that, it's going to be so simple that hopefully you'll start living it. Because that's the point. So let's start this morning with the first word, the first of our seven, creator. John 1.3 says this. God created everything through Jesus. And nothing was created except through him. God created everything. Everything, everything through Jesus, and nothing, nothing, nothing has been created except through him. I want you to take a look around this room, just, just quickly. Kind of look up and look around and look at the walls and see what's on stage. Because if you stop and think about it, everything in this room, from this music stand to my microphone to this funky little box that Jackson steps on that I have no clue what it actually does, but everything in this room has been created by someone, somewhere, to do something. I want you to think about that. Everything in here can be traced back to a designer, a maker, a creator. Nothing in this room just magically appeared. Nothing just came out of nowhere. Nothing just accidentally fell into place. Everything was formed and fashioned on purpose for a purpose. There's not a single thing in this room that you could point out that I can't say, yeah, someone made that somewhere to do something. That's just true of everything in this room. And John 1.3 tells us who that someone is and where that somewhere was. It was God in heaven. 
He's the one that created everything. On the back of everything in this world, including you, is a little tag that says, made in heaven by the Lord. He made it. Romans 11.36 says it this way, from him and through him and to him are all things. They all come from him. Now, I could go super scientific and kind of overwhelm you with the you know, argument for the existence of God and use all the tools and resources available to us, but I don't want to confuse you, and I don't think the writer of Genesis wanted to confuse you either. Genesis 1, 1 and 2 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And there was a very literal translation. If you just take the Hebrew words and just very literal, it says, way back when. Don't worry about the time and the date and the exact moment. Just way back when. God of heaven created everything that you cannot see up above and everything you can see down below. He is the creator. Everything that exists is not here because of some giant cosmic accident. It's not here because of some big bang. It's not here because enough time elapsed so certain primordial cells would mutate positively in just the right way. It's here because there's a God in heaven who wants it to be here. It's here because it's been purposed. It's been designed. It's been made. Everything on earth, including you, exists because God wants it that way. Why is there a world? Because God created it. Why are you in the world? Because God created you. That is where we start, is with creator. And one of my favorite parts about the story is how God did it. Any other parents ever kind of succumb to the because I told you so argument? Anybody else ever have to kind of stoop to that level? It's just me. Awesome. Makes me feel really great about my parenting. But we all kind of do that, do we not? When Bailey was little, there was this one day where she was just asking question after question after question. And normally I try to give like deeper answers to my children. I try to, you know, honor their minds. In this moment, I had just had enough. One final question comes up. Because I said so. That's why. End of argument. Well, guess how the world was created? Because God said so. I love that about our God. Think of it in terms of a song. Many Hebrew scholars believe that the creation account in Genesis is actually a poem. It's like a song that God was singing. He began creation by singing a song. And as Jackson, our worship leader, as he leads that song, he's creating something out of nothing, isn't he? And that song is being created. And as soon as he stops singing it, the song ceases to exist. That's why we not only call God a creator, but also the sustainer. He has to continue to sing the song that is us. He continues to sing the song that is creation. And as he sings, we get this. If he were to ever stop singing, we would never have any of this. So if you want to learn more about how creation works, the science behind it, I mean, we can get all technical and get to the nitty-gritty of it. I've got some resources for you. There's Case for Creator by Lee Strobel, The Lost World of Genesis by John Walton, a number of books or blog posts by my favorite author, William Lane Craig. He's out of Biola. But there is a creator behind everything. We know this to be true logically, right? In this world, in this room, everything was created on purpose for a purpose. The same is true for you. And the God who made it didn't even have to lift a finger. I worked outside for a few hours yesterday and then I was spit all afternoon. 
That's not true for God. He made it all, and then he was able to sit back and enjoy it all. Let me, let me see if I can explain it a, a different way. Uh, I did this for the youth uh, maybe a year, a year and a half ago, so if you've already seen this, do not let the cat out of the bag, okay? I've got, a, uh, I've got a blank canvas here. This is kind of how Scripture is described early in Genesis. It says everything was void and blank. The Hebrew phrase is tohu vabohu. Everybody say that. Tohu vabohu. There you go. So everything was this. It was void. It was empty. There was nothingness to all of creation. So I'm just going to set this, this right here. And I've got some watercolors, one of my favorite uh, mediums when it comes to art right here. So all of the paints, all of the brushes are right here. I'm going to set that right next to it. And then I've got a little one of our tumblers. Uh, this is our special guest uh, visitor or a uh, visitor present or whatever you want to say. Thank you for being here. Uh, so stop at the front desk. Church plug. Okay. And water paints canvas. How long do I need to stand here and wait for a beautiful painting to appear on that blank canvas? I mean, you've paid for maybe another 20 minutes, right? So 20 minutes? Okay, some of you have paid for another 20 minutes. 20 hours? Should we come back tomorrow? 20 years? 20 decades? 20 millennia? How, many, how long? How long would it take? Well, we all know, right, kind of logically, that even if you had all of the correct elements in place, that a blank canvas does not turn to something beautiful magically, accidentally, all by itself. It needs a creator, it needs a designer, it needs a painter, does it not? You can have everything present that is needed, but until you have a creator behind it, it will always be tohu vabohu. So to get to something like this, and this is no great piece of artwork by any stretch, but to get to this, you need a designer. You need someone who understands how to use the mediums. You need some intelligence, do you not? Now, I painted this, so there's not a lot of intelligence involved. I can promise you that. But there's some. And if you were to come to me and you say, man, that is so pretty. I really, I really love how you painted that. That's crazy how that happened accidentally. What an insult that would be to me as the creator. Would it not be? I'm a pastor, but I'm not a saint. I'd slap you in the face. That's an accident. That's not an accident. I spent all week on this thing. It didn't just happen accidentally over time. The paint didn't just randomly fall on here and mutate into a beautiful picture. It took a designer to go from tohu vabohu, which is nothingness, emptiness, to something worthwhile. Does that make sense? That is true for the entire universe, and that is true for you. You went from nothingness, empty, void, no life, to something beautiful. The scripture says God's masterpiece because of an accident, because some rocks, because of pond scum, because of monkeys morphing over time. That, that's why you're here? Or are you here because the creator said, I want this, and I'm going to speak it into existence, and God always gets what God wants. So I'm going to leave that right there. You don't go from tohu vabohu to beauty without a creator. Listen to how Psalm 33 says it. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of God's mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. And he puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. 
So as we end our time, let me close by kind of drilling this home a little bit. I don't want this to be a hypothetical, God created the world. I want this to hit home with you. God created you. And the fact that there is a creator should shape our worldview, and our worldview shapes how we think, how we act, what we do. So let me, let me drive it home in three ways. This is what God has made specifically, and I think this should shape how we as Christians see the world, see ourselves, and see everybody else. The first thing God made was life. God created life. Kind of like, no, duh, you've already, you've already said that, you've already read that. But in Acts 3.15, the Apostle Peter refers to God as the author of life. I love that phrase, because if God literally wrote down the beginning, middle, and end of not only all of creation, but even your life, every life on the earth is known by God, decreed by God. He is the one who breathes life, his own life, into things. So this week, many of you probably heard of the story, the situation involving a young man named DeMar Hamlin. DeMar Hamlin was a football player for the Buffalo Bills, and on Monday night in their game, their primetime game, DeMar went into cardiac arrest in the middle of the game. He had to be resuscitated, revived right there on the field. Now, I've played football. It's a rather violent game. I've got the scars and the broken collarbone and the concussions to prove it. But men don't die in football. It's not gladiators. And so to see someone on the verge of death was shocking. It was sobering. It was scary. And what did everybody say, even beginning in that very moment? What were the sentiments and the comments throughout the entire week? Let's be sending our thoughts and prayers to DeMar Hamlin and his family. This is where a biblical worldview comes into play. Your thoughts and your prayers. If you don't have a biblical worldview, who are you thinking about or who are you praying to? Are we all just to pray to the air that somehow the air would come and revive DeMar Hamlin? Are we all praying to the four spirits, that the four winds, if you will? Are we just praying kind of like to goodwill that all of the positive energy that we have will go to DeMar Hamlin? When you have a biblical worldview, who are you praying to? The creator of life, the author of life. And so when you don't know what's going to happen with a life, if you're scared of death, that's who you pray to. We're not just praying out there somewhere in the hopes that something will catch a hold of this. We are praying to the author of life because life is precious. And so, of course, we should pray for someone who's about to lose it. So God is the creator of life, the giver of life, the source of life, which means that life is precious. And this is why Christians should care deeply about abortion. Because it's life. But if we are living out a biblical worldview to its fullest and most complete expression, then we should care deeply about all forms of life and every stage of life. See how this works? We should care about people who are nearing the end of life because life matters. We should find ways to stop people from taking innocent life because life matters. We should care deeply about the quality of people's lives because life matters. We need to find ways for those who are incarcerated to get a fresh start in life because life matters. You see how this works? You can't be a single issue, single stage Christian and have a biblical worldview. It's not just fetus life that's been made by the creator. It's all of life. And so this last week, we celebrated kind of the life and the death of one of our own, Jack Spray. 
Why would we fight for his life to continue? Why would we care about him towards the end of his life? Because it's made by God. That's why. And so we fight for life. We care about life. We pour our time and our energy into making life abundant like Jesus did. Let's go one step further. How about plants, animals, creation? Should Christians care at all about those things? I would think so because they were birthed out of the creator, right? They were given to us by the creator God. They were given life as well. And so why should we recycle, find new ways to to find energy sources, right? Game and fish, understanding how to bless people with food. What is that? That's a biblical worldview saying God has created all that there is and we are going to be good stewards of it. We're going to manage it. We're going to oversee it. That brings us to the second word, the second thing that God created. He created work. Now, I know for many of you, work is a four-letter word. Well, it's a four-letter word for all of us because guess what? It's a four-letter word. I mean a bad word, right? It's a four-letter word meaning that we don't like work. We complain about work. We try to find ways to avoid work or get out of work or retire early from our work. But guess what? The creator not only made life, the creator made work. This is a beautiful part of his creation, his painting, Genesis 1.26. So God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may sit on the beach all day long and drink virgin strawberry daiquiris. Is that what the Bible says? Let us make mankind so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. God made us and made life, and then he made work. Because work is of him. It's a beautiful, designed thing. Now, he didn't make man to do work for him and to appease him like other religions, right? Like, you better work hard for me because the gods are taking a break upstairs. No, no, he made work for us to do with him and alongside of him. Now, this is the sixth word in our series, so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but I just want you to know, and I want you to spend time thinking about the gift of work that has been given to each of us. Your work and what you do tomorrow morning or this afternoon or later night, whatever it is, when you go to work, that is actually you living out the fullness of the Creator's life to you because He has made you and then He's made you for work. So let's say you hate your job right now. Let's say that you do not like work and you're the one that's constantly chirping about how terrible it is. A couple things need to change. One thing would be your attitude towards work. It's a gift from God. The second thing that might need to change is your work. Because if you are not having life breathed into you and if you are not bringing life into this world through your work, then something's wrong. You're in the wrong line of work. You were made to work super hard and somehow in and through your work, whether it be at NASA, whether it be at Starbucks, wherever you are working, you were created to bring creative energies, creative powers, God-likeness into that space. So change your spirit towards your work or change your work because all of it was designed by a good God for your good. And then finally, kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum, God made rest. It's amazing how in our society, we kind of swing between these two pendulums so drastically. We have the 80 or 90 hour work week over here, like work, 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 obsessed with that. And then we have like the 80 or 90 hour Netflix binge over here. Like, whoa, how about somewhere in between there, right? 
But we work really hard or then we play really hard, but I'm not sure either of it is the way that God would want it to be. But look at how God made, how God created rest. Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on that day he rested from all of his work and all the creating that he had done. Hebrew scholars don't think that God stopped working on the seventh day or stopped creating, I should say. He was creating things like naps and sleep and rest and relaxation. Don't you love that? That for six days it was really hardcore and it was really productive and it was really good and the seventh day he's like, man... I want people to rest. And so he created rest. God didn't stop creating. He just created some R&R on those days. And I love that about our God. He's not a slave driver. He's not overly demanding boss who only cares about the bottom line. He rests. He created rest, and then he invites us in to rest. And I think that we are terrible at resting. Again, we have the workaholics, and some of you need to kind of come to terms with the fact that you are not resting well at all. Some of you will go to lunch today and then you'll go home and you'll start looking at the books. You'll hop back online to kind of figure out what's going on with your transactions. You'll start to work. And some of you, you work on Sunday afternoons. I get that. But then when is your Sabbath? When is your rest? So some of us work too much and we don't rest well. We feel guilty about resting. And then the only time that we will rest is when we're knocked on our backside because we're sick. Ever have that happen where someone's like, oh, a little forced Sabbath, huh? (laughs) Why do we joke about that? It is a forced Sabbath because you have been incapable of taking a Sabbath on your own. And your body is literally telling you right now, if you don't rest, you will die. And being sick is like a little expression of that. Then there's the opposite end of the extreme where, you know, we're resting, but we're like playing golf all the week or we're taking trips to the beach or we're binge watching shows. And those are good things. And I do all of those things, but I'm not sure those things are very restful. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not sure at the end of that time that I feel more alive or that I feel more rested or that I feel more whole and complete. That's the point of Sabbath. In Sabbath, you should really rest. I mean, sleep on Sabbath. Read on the Sabbath. Pray, meditate during your time off. Worship. Unplug. Be still. Take a walk. Journal. Relax. Just sit. Because God created you for rest. And some of you are not living in that very well. And thus, you're not living very well. Because he made you in your life. He made you to work and work hard. But he also made you to rest and rest well. And I really want to challenge you in 23 to really focus on all three of those things. So, let's bring this home just a little bit more as we conclude. What is true for the entire universe, that at one point it was tohu vabohu. There was nothing to it. Well, because there's a great creator, he spoke a beautiful painting into existence. That is the world that we live in. But what is true of the great universe is also true for you. There was nothing for a while, but then your creator, your maker said, I want you to be here. I want this to be seen by the world. And this is you. The universe was made on purpose for a purpose. So were you. The universe has worth and value and was created. So were you. The universe is full of God's beauty and power and majesty, guess what? So are you. So are some things in life complicated? Yes. Ask any of our engineers in here. There's some super complicated stuff. But something that's not very complicated at all, 
there is a creator behind everything. And that creator created you. That's where we start in this process, in this worldview, understanding that there is a creator who made life, and that's why it is precious. That's why we try to live it to the fullest. That's why we protect the lives of others, because there is a creator. There is a creator. That's why we care about the earth. That's why we do things to make this place better, because there is a creator. See how a creator shapes your worldview? Creator shapes what's going on in and around. So let me pray for us now that we would just fully understand and appreciate that we have all been made by a creator. Not just true for the universe as a whole, but it's also true for every person in this room. God, I thank you for being the great creator. That you were the only one who could have spoken this song into existence. And what a beautiful song it is. From the Himalayas, God, to a cup of coffee, to DNA strands, Father, you created everything. There is nothing in this world that exists outside of you, and it's not here because you didn't want it to be. It's here because you did want it to be, and that is true for each and every one of us. So I pray for those of us in this room that might be struggling with self-worth, with feelings of depression or sadness. They're not here by accident, God. And we did not give ourselves life, therefore we should never take our own life, God. We should never take the life of another because you have given that life. And so help us to know why. Why are we here, Father? What is the purpose, the reason behind our life? Would you open our eyes to the work that you have for us? For some, it's being a student. For some right now, the work that you have for them is just learning and growing. Understanding how the world works so that one day they can go out into this world and make it so much better. For others of us, God, our work is is in the marketplace. And so we will go and we will sell goods and services. We we, we will do things. We will instruct people. We will help out others because in doing that, we feel like we are stewarding the great world that you made, Father. Others of us, God, if we are retired, our work right now is to encourage other people. Our work right now is to share our wisdom, to provide insight, to be a great source of encouragement and blessing to others. God, would you help us to do the work that we have been tasked with now? Help us to do it well. We love the life that you have given. We are grateful for the life that you have given to us and help us to love the work that you have given to us as well. And then God, help us to rest this year. Would this be a year where we have lots of time where we just watch the sunset? Lots of time where we just get to sit and play a game with our family. Lots of time where we just open up your word and we're not rushed, we're not checking off a box. We're just there to listen to you. Lots of time where there's some worship playing in the background and where we're talking deeply with a family member or a friend about important things. Just help us to rest. You created us for that. So we thank you that you are the creator. Our hearts and our spirits, God, do not have to be tohu vabohu. They do not have to be empty or dark or void. They can be filled with the most wonderful thing. Help us to turn to you to do just that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How do I know that the creator loves his creation? How do I know that he looks on his canvas with great joy? How do I know that? Jesus. You see, you would not give your son to die on the cross because the painting was eh. You would not give your son to die on the cross if it was just kind of blank and void and there was nothing there, right? You would give your son because it's the the masterpiece that you have made. 
You would give your most prized possession because you love that which you created more than anything. So when we come to the table this morning, that's what I want you to focus on. You value and are are so valuable to God. You matter so much to God that he would be willing to sacrifice his only son because that's how special, that's how precious you as his creation are to him. So let's go to the table now. We have two elements that we take, the bread representing his body broken and the little juice representing his blood shed. And we come now and we say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for giving us life originally and thank you for giving us life eternal. Let's go to the table now.